Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 133, where I had a chat with Martin Pepperell. He is a Wellington-based writer, DJ, broadcaster, publicist. Uh, He's connected and involved to the music industry in many ways, and he's a guy I've known for a long time. I, I guess we do some things in a similar way, although, as I sort of said to him near the start of this conversation, it tends to be when I would bump into him at gigs that, you know, my work was just beginning. I'm the person going to review the show, whereas his work's just finishing up. He's usually done the preview or been the publicist, done an interview to help promote it, uh, worked directly with the artist. Maybe he's DJing before the artist goes on on the stage, that sort of thing. So I guess we've, we've sort of come at things from different angles, but um, but we've known each other for a while and uh, and been, been involved in some of the same topics in different ways. Um, He's got a bunch of bunch of things to talk about here. Obviously, talk through his his life and career, um, and and then I guess the most pressing thing that's on in terms of where he's at in terms of his work is he's been involved in uh, a significant reissue of an album for a label called Awesome Tapes from Africa. So you'll hear all about that. Uh, he was involved. He wrote the liner notes and he was involved with helping get that reissue off the ground, which came about as a relationship with with his. Um, with the guy who DJs under the name Awesome Tapes from Africa. Anyway, you'll hear that whole story in the podcast. Um, what happened before we recorded this podcast, we were, we were set to record it and Martin sent me a message. He said, look, honestly, I'm okay, but I need to tell you I can't come round today. My my father just died last night, and um, so I can't come round. Uh, we'll have to reschedule it. And so we had some messages about that, and then we did reschedule it. And then when he came round, he wanted to talk about his father, Brian Pepperell, because he, he, he was uh, a long-serving Wellington City Council man, so he was known, you know, he had a public profile and was known. So so Martin talks quite a bit about um, his dad and their relationship and, and, and managing grief and his understanding of it. Uh, so, yeah, I guess this gets a little heavy or could get a little heavy for some people, but it's just a really open, honest... Uh, discussion and in part I guess it's a tribute to his father um, and to their relationship and to and to um, and to and to life in general so this is me talking with Martin Pepperell and uh, yeah we, we run the gamut on this one it's a folk record it's a country record it's an ambient record yeah it's a world music record yeah um, it's a political record yeah <laughs> yeah 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 it's all- I mean it's a slam dunk but the yeah. key with it was um it's something that people have to sort of just hear for themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely like, you. it's quite hard to hype it. Yeah, You yeah, sort of have to yeah. let people just naturally connect with let, it. Let people connect with it, and there it is. And then there's backstory attached to it but, uh, yeah. around both the musicians and then around the reissue, like around the discovery of it and rediscovery of it. And, and yeah. then there's, for some people, finding it, there's the whole... I'm guessing there's the whole awesome tapes from Africa story outside of that. That they, yeah. you know, th- then there's people that are already aware of awesome tapes and what that is and what he does. Well, the important thing to note though is, in a lot of ways, it is radically different from anything else in the awesome tapes discography. Mm. And part of this was deliberate. Yeah. I mean, there is there's a need over time as you know as a label grows and expands, you need to. Most labels want to broaden their horizons over time. Yeah, you know, yeah, If you look yeah, at yeah, like yeah. the difference between 4AD and the 80s to yeah. 4AD now, yeah. you know, you're always going to try around some different areas. Yeah. And another thing also was... Flying Nun when it relaunched, you know. You know, when someone does like a reissue label, or maybe in particular a reissue label dealing in 
African music, or Asian music or something, for example. Mm. It's all this whole thing, you know, the deep cuts, the rare, the obscurities, the weird stuff. And a lot of it, I mean, I suppose the last few years has been so much of a focus on like boogie and disco from places like Nigeria and South Africa. And sometimes you get the feeling that the tone of what... There's a group, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of money who probably mostly work in things like finance, who are into record collecting and have an idea of what um, music from across the African continent should sound like. Mm. And they'll buy these records and play them at home or maybe go and DJ them to predominantly white audiences. And you get the <laughs> you get this really slanted view of what was going on, you know? Um, so it's important to not it's important to not let like one particular demographic dictate um, what people know. And the great thing with that record is it's a record that was really quite became quite commercial in the Ivory Coast in West Africa in the mid to late 80s but it hasn't been properly released or promoted in the Western or English speaking yeah, language yeah, yeah. world so in that sense it's almost more important because it's a document of what actually was the popular yeah. music yeah yeah, yeah 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 it's, it's literally a whole world people didn't know about in terms of yeah. like uh, geographically but you know musically like what and it's politically within that but just the whole you know how would you have any idea that this was the popular music of that place at the time well you just wouldn't until, know until you hear it and, yeah, get, to, and get told that yeah. you, you wouldn't know until you're told even if hearing it you yeah. wouldn't know that yeah was this popular or not <laughs> you know yeah, like, yeah, how yeah. could you know yeah. but it does have that kind of it does have um, which I guess is one of the, the, the aims of a good reissue label perhaps it does have enough of a timelessness around that the idea fuck you could have told me that music was made five years ago and I might have believed it you know you could have told me it was 50 years old and it would have almost been true too yeah well this is increasingly the challenge for British yeah. years I think because um how can I put it some days on the internet you get the feeling that more old music yeah. is being released than new music yeah 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 okay yeah. so that's so that's an interesting thing in itself. You know, that's like a whole other. I think that's a, I think that's sort of okay too. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's, you know, it, it, I, I sort of a couple of years ago realised it doesn't really matter what you what you listen to as long as you're listening and and you can find yeah you can find old stuff that's new to you and that's really rewarding. Well, I mean, it's interesting though because once upon a time you could only listen to music that had been released in the period of time you were mm, living in, mm, and you mm. could only really listen to music that was available within the geographic region you're in yeah and yeah. um i mean this is why if we talk about nigeria as an example you know nigeria did have an incredible disco and boogie scene in the early 80s that no one really knew anything about because those records just weren't reaching the western mm. world mm. but the records from the western world english and american boogie and disco records were reaching there so that's why you'll hear things like mm. it's how if you go, you look at records from all around the world released in, say, about um, early 80s, like, you'll always, you'll always hear records that have, um, say, a slight variation on the bass line from Good Times by Sheik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I've heard, I've got Japanese records that use something like that, you know, Nigerian records, South African, Korean, like, you keep going. So... The American and English, like, global monoculture has a big influence on these places, but these places weren't able to 
influence back apart from mm. you know the small the rare um examples that we know like you know maybe who would you have i think it maxi priest is from the ivory coast maybe there's a small there's a tiny there's a tiny number of artists from these countries mm. like how new zealand for a long time are shot back on a mainstream level would have been crowded house yeah you know? and yeah. i guess on an underground level like flying nine splitty yeah, 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 yeah. like kind of yeah. um maybe like hello sailor but yeah, so I think that's a cool thing with the whole reissue thing is um, these periods of time that maybe didn't get there, just Jews having the opportunity to mm. uh, properly connect with audiences, mm. you know, on a level playing field. Mm. Yeah, mm. I wanna um, I wanna talk about that more, but I feel like we should go all the way back and and talk about you and who yeah, you are and how you got yeah, to yeah. that. So yeah. you know, I'm, I was. Ha- happy to talk about that some more because it's it's very interesting but so i mean i usually when it's someone i know on the podcast i i sort of talk about how how i know them and um and and where and i guess i think we would have like met it well i know we would have met online before we met in person but i seem to recall sometime and it was probably like 10 years ago now or something like that we basically took the conversation offline into real life and met and had a beer because we were essentially doing similar things yeah for Um, sure what 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 i think probably after that i realized quite quickly was actually we would see each other a lot at gigs but um you'd you'd sort of done a lot of your writing up to the gig like you'd previewed the gig interviewed people yeah yeah, yeah. maybe help promote it yeah maybe been a publicist for it maybe a combination of those things and I tended to be to the the gig reviewer so my reviewing my writing work was just you know yeah, so we were, we were actually approaching the gig we would have a conversation at the gig but we might be you know we we're at different ends of it yeah, <laughs> yeah it's probably sure. a good way to to describe how I guess we've op- although of course I've done some uh, previewing and some uh, publicity work and you've done some reviewing so you know there's crossover but but um, I, I want to know sort of um, some of the stuff from before I met you and how you got into, I guess, the work that you do, the, the hobbies that you've parlayed into work. Okay, okay. Well, I guess like, if we go, just for everyone who's listening, I'm petting the dog. I don't actually know the dog's name. Oh, Bowie. Really, Bowie. Bowie's a really yeah. nice dog here. It's yeah. a little bit distracting. But um, yeah. Okay, so I, I was born in Wellington in 1982 and um, a big part of why words and music matter to me is because of my father and mother. My father Brian Robert Pepperell died on the 2nd of August so we're just coming out the other end of his um, funeral and everything around that which has been pretty crazy but it was interesting because I had to put together the music for his funeral. Mm. So I had to go back and think back to, you know, what was the stuff that he used to listen to or play when we were growing up? Mm. And when we were growing up, you know, his guys, he really loved Leonard Cohen and he loved Aaron Neville and the Neville Brothers, Marvin Gaye, Talking Heads, um, Van Morrison, like Billy Joel, a lot of stuff within that sort of world and area. And I guess the most perfect way you could summarize his music taste down would probably be Aaron Neville's cover of Bird on a Wire. So, you know, that's the Yeah, 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 yeah. The pulling together of two. Yeah, dis- and that's distinct. really interesting because it's, you know, why was Aaron Neville listening to Leonard Kahn? Mm. And why did he want to cover that? And did Leonard Kahn ever cover the Neville Brothers? I don't know. Mm. Or, li- or listen to them. <laughs> You know. But you know, so but these guys, you know, so Leonard really cared about words, and you know, I think he had like a pretty strong understanding of how to create a great backdrop for them, and 
feeling as well. And I think Aaron really understood like words and feel, really understands words and feeling. And he's always like his music's always been paired up with great backdrops too. So these two guys had seemed very distant. Mm. There's actually a lot more common ground to them than mm. there might initially appear. Okay, so mm. this is something that I think I feel quite lucky to have realised quite early on is that you know these very distant worlds can be very close and very connected. Um, so that's like the music area. There's a lot of that's music. You know, music is something that like comes from him growing up. Um, now, like my mother's a legal editor for a, a legal journal. You know, and she's always loved books. She's always loved reading. She always read stories to us when, when we were kids. You know, there were always books in the house, always access to that sort of thing. Mm. So there was always access to music, always access to books. You know, there was always encouragement to do things like write or if you wanted to play instruments um you know like my mother plays well she doesn't really play anymore but she played piano violin um so that's like that's the backdrop yeah know, so words and like music's in the house words like. and music and you know that in a lot of ways that extends up till about high school and in a lot of ways like it wasn't until i got to high school that i started really making my own decisions around music because prior to that point I was probably a lot more interested in books, films, yeah. you know, like of reading. I mean, I'm, like, it's really, it's going to sound, there's no way to make it not sound funny, but I would have been reading things like Catch-22 when I was about eight or nine years old, you know, so like books, words, all that. It's very interesting, you know, reading books all the time. Like well, do. how are you finding them just because they're in the house? Yeah, or the school but, library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the school library. Yeah. Just something always, you know, I was yeah. really quickly, I was reading books and reading like yeah. a lot of books. And like, I thought the music that played at home was pretty good. But, you know, you get to high school and you yeah. start to, um, you make some more decisions around yourself. Yeah. You know, you start thinking about what you're into. And so I'd had that as a backdrop. And so when I arrived at high school, which is, I guess, like 1996 or something, um, Okay, so there's, this, there's a few things happening around Wellington at the time. One, there's this burgeoning warehouse rave scene that was a few years in, in a very similar vein to what's been going on the last mm. couple of years, so things like mm. um, the 121 promotion brand, like their club night that they run down in the old Good Luck, doing like their massive things, like the big thing with Fat Freddy's a few weeks ago. So there's this whole warehouse rave thing where people are playing house and techno, jungle, drum and bass, ambient. Like local producers, you know, people like Jet Jaguar were starting to put music out there. And so there's this local electronic thing going on. And you can really see it and feel it on the streets on the way people are dressing, what's going on. And the drinking age, age hadn't gone down to 18 yet. So a lot of people organising shows might have been under 21. So they're doing all ages events. So you know, teenagers like me can go. So you've got that whole world going on. And then, then you've got the whole hip-hop thing. And the hip-hop thing is really interesting because when we were younger my father employed a man named Dean Harpeter as uh, um, just to help him out on some work he was doing with landscape architecture and Dean of course was T Cooper from Upper Hutt Posse so mm. Upper Hutt Posse and their parents were family friends so I remember seeing Upper Hutt Posse perform at the opening of Te Papa in, I think, 1990, same year as Sesqui 1990. You know, you could do a whole podcast about Sesqui 1990, mm. but we'll leave that mm. alone. Mm. So, awareness of that sort of thing, and then in high school, you know, you start encountering more of that sort of stuff. People like Eric B and Rakim, Grandmaster Flash, 
um, the Furious Five, Sugar Hill Gang, Nas. But then the whole, the bridge between the electronic and the hip-hop music, you have um, your trip-hop stuff, you know, your Tricky, your Portishead, your like, DJ Shadow, Moax, Massive Attack, all that kind of stuff going on. And then over, because it's 1996, 1997, obviously, things are huge, like Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, mm. all that sort of like alternative grunge rock stuff is all going on. And, um, and the whole um, mainstreaming of for want of one to yeah. techno, like the big beats. Yeah, stuff, the big like beats. Chemi- yeah. Chemical Brothers yeah, and yeah. stuff. So all that becomes, they become superstar Yeah, DJs. they do. So all, <laughs> yeah. that, all of that's going on. And yeah. then, like, at the same time, there were a lot of all-ages band shows around Wellington at the time, also at places like Thistle mm. Hall, you know, punk shows and the like. So there's all this access to music and music culture, and Wellington's got really great record stores at the time. Um, and... Um, one of my uncles, Ian, he's a musician. He um, he lends me a drum machine. And so I learn, learn how to program drums, how to program some synths, you know, make some very rudimentary recordings with them. Um, at high school, uh, Wellington High School, you know, once you get to about the middle way, you get to a sixth form, seventh form, and you're able to do things like journalism class, film mm. and television studies class, photography class. Okay, you can do all this stuff and you put together a school magazine so it's like okay you've got an opportunity to um, if you feel like you're good at writing or you're good at talking to people you've got an opportunity to go and try this all out you know maybe you so I mean at that age I was making music videos short films writing stories for the school magazine Um, and it's even funnier because there's a bit I'll give you a bit that I don't normally talk about which was in 1994 when I was an intermediate City Voice, now you remember City Voice. Mm, yep. So people who don't remember City Voice was a community newspaper. Like Capital Times. Times which people don't remember anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was a community newspaper like the Cook's yeah. Rate Times. Yeah. And they put a call out to, they were doing a teenage pages called Zitty City. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my father told me about that and I went to a meeting and I wrote a few interviews and did some pieces of writing that were published. So this was like, I would have been like 12, 13, you know, 1994. I had like a little, a little resume, you know, a little published resume of like mm. a few like interviews and like reviews and things. Um, I don't want to look at them though. I don't want to ever go back and look at them. Yeah. I was just going to say, why do you normally not talk about this? Is it just... It was too long ago. It's just too long it's ago. It's too long ago. It's 1994 and this is Yeah. It's just, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't think it really... For most people, it wouldn't hold that it's much pre, It's pre-story rather than story. Yeah, because there's yeah. a lot of stuff that I don't really talk about because I think it's too long ago. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so you come to the end of high school and um, me and a friend of mine I'd met on Cuba Street through dance parties and the like, he was a graphic designer. And we thought, man, this is all so exciting. Like, we should get, we should get involved. We should do something. So for a year, like, we made... A weekly black and white zine and I'd handle looking after the writing he'd handle the graphic design and we'd make this thing and photocopy it and leave it in cafes around town and stuff like that and through doing that we came into the orbit of another set of people people won't really remember which is the people who ran the package oh yeah yeah so Pablo Pablo Revolta Pablo Mason he ended up working as a graphic designer for the package and I did some bits and pieces of writing for them and um I then, I think... What year did you write to New Zealand Musician? I think it must have been 1997. 
Yeah, see, I would have written to a New Zealand musician probably about 2001, maybe right. 2002. Might have been 98, it was one of the two. Yeah, yeah so I, I write to them yeah. and it's a similar story, you yeah. know, like the assistant editor wrote back or emailed back and, mm. um, and I started doing some reviews for them. But at the same time, I'd... Something I was completely oblivious to during high school, I'd discovered student radio. So, Radioactive and Wellington, BFM and Auckland, you know, this whole network of these, like, university stations that aren't really university mm. stations, mm. and probably weren't even really then at the time, but mm. who seemed to speak to this audience and culture that um, I was engaging with, you know, going to, like, parties at Studio 9 or Indigo, before San Fran was mm. San Fran, um, Valve, which is now Valhalla, this whole world. Um, and I got involved in started doing some radio shows and started thinking about things like DJing. I think about things like DJing and writing and doing radio shows and then I was using some message boards on the internet and I made friends with a guy who lived in Christchurch and he was making some electronic music. I thought that was really great. That was a mixture. What he was doing, you would, you'd call it, you'd probably call it jungle drum and bass but he was using a lot of hip-hop and dancehall reggae elements in it. He had some really cool rhythmic sensibilities. We became friends on the internet and I eventually met him in Christchurch when I went to the South Island one year to attend Alpine Unity, which was one of the big New Year's Eve dance mm. parties that happened after the gathering. So there's a gathering as well, but the gathering in Nelson and all of that, that's a whole other story. Um, so we got talking and we thought, man, this music's really good, you know, we should do something with it. So what we did was we put together our version of a small record label and we went out to Amstor and we grabbed a friend who was a designer and we made a few hundred copies of an EP with a few of his songs on it and we booked um, a release party for him to DJ at Christchurch because he was already DJing down there and had some relationships. I went and saw some friends who had a DJ night at Valve which is now Valhalla on Tuesday nights asked if he could play on it we got Cosmic Corner to give us some sponsorship money um, for flights and we put this little thing together and it went really well and people really liked it and he had some more music he wanted to do so we did an album and we started doing some shows more regularly and we started getting some local vocalists and singers to sing over his sets, people like the Mighty Asterix or Jules Iser, who people were New Zealand reggae singers who had had this whole thing that happened in the late 90s mm. and it sort of vanished for a little bit in the early 2000s but they were still around and they were still really good so we put these shows together with a mixture of DJs um, and vocalists and built like this small little audience in it for it in Wellington for a couple of years and um, while we're doing that I thought okay well if we're doing that it would be good to do things like keep on trying to do writing about things relating to this world we're in or radio you know okay we're in it we're doing it so maybe we should be involved on a few different levels mm. um long story short a record label in america sends an email and they're like hey we really we've heard some of the stuff on the internet we really love it we'd like to put out a few of the songs so tactic who was the producer from christchurch we worked with them and he got to put out this EP of these four songs on vinyl, like 12 inch, 2004, you know, like it's mm. like, okay, your music's coming out on vinyl, like worldwide, you know, wow, amazing, yeah. you know, for kids. Yeah. Um, and then other places started getting in touch, you know, there was, um, and long story short, what we ended up having to do was we ended up 
having to go and take a thing over to Australia and to America because there was a bit of a scene for this sort of thing and this led to things like going and putting together shows in places like Adelaide or Melbourne and Sydney with between 400 to 800 people at them smaller things in places like Montreal, Boston, New York and um, then there were there were people who maybe um, might have aspired to be hip-hop or reggae singers in America and Canada who realised, hey, this whole, this jungle drum based thing, like, I can be successful in this in a way that it, maybe I can't be in the genre I was originally aiming for. Yeah. Um, so he ended up doing some production work for some of them. I worked with some, and I ended up, as a result of that, I ended up spending about a year based in Montreal, going back and forth between Montreal, New York, Toronto and Ottawa, like working with these different people in this world and trying to do these different projects. And the big thing that came out of that was a second album for Tactic that had a whole bunch of semi-famous dancehall and like ragga like singers from America and like the UK who contribu contributed vocals to songs on that. And you know, that continued on for a couple of years. We brought that back to New Zealand and Australia, toured that around a bunch of times. Um, life got in the way and people wanted to do things like buy houses or start families or settle into proper jobs because as great and as interesting as all that sounds, like there's not a huge amount of money. Yeah, there. yeah, I was just going to say it's all um, oily rag kind of stuff. Like right? you get, okay, even if you get four there's people... There's a thrill involved yeah. in it, but what's sustaining it? You know? Well, you get four people to Australia to play three or four shows to 500 people each like still what you're going to walk home with at that level at that time you would only be walking home with you know a few hundred dollars each yeah. or something you know? yeah 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 and there's a point at which when you're working at something in a niche or underground territory without like funding or a truly international audience yeah. by which i mean being able to do like long european or american tours <laughs> yeah. like there's and a that, point. That few hundred dollars seems a hell of a lot less when you have a show that falls over completely or... Oh, no, it kills you. It you know, kills you, you know. You're just done, right? And then you just somehow you regroup and do it again because you're interested in it. But there's a point you can only do that a few times. Yeah, 100%. You, yeah, before you're like, fuck, we need something to actually sustain us. while, Or, or some people just get completely out of it and just go, right, that's me done. I've got to go and grow up and get a job. Yeah, so a, a version yeah. of that happened yeah. were involving like the core participants sort of like yeah. moved on and um so I'm left there thinking, Okay, well what am what am I gonna do? And you know, I had all these like contacts now with like radio, mm. Mm. um magazines at the time. Because yep. this wasn't the internet. Yeah, yeah. This was not the internet, you know, like short message boards and things and yeah, maybe yeah, I'd done a bit of like online writing for like websites we didn't get paid but this mm. was very much um mm. yeah this was a different era to the era we're in now and so i thought okay well like maybe i'll like give this like writing thing a go you know i'll give it a crack and i'll see what i can do with this um so i wrote to um a few places you know i wrote to wrote to groove guide that no one will remember now because it's been gone for a long time <laughs> this is just like a, a graveyard of, of yeah of uh dead publications we're gonna try to <laughs> yeah and um and yeah. kerry kerry and brett who was the editor at the time um much like the experience you with new zealand musician you said you had specialty knowledge with jazz and blues yeah i i said i had specialty knowledge for something <laughs> yeah and she was like oh you know no one's ever said right, that we so need that. yeah <laughs> come yeah, and yeah, join yeah, you know yeah. so yeah. So I started doing like 
some interviews and reviews for Groove Guide, and then I started doing some interviews and reviews for um, Rip It Up under Carl Pushman back when it was a bi monthly magazine, not the mm-hmm. weekly zombie version that it eventually became. Mm-hmm. Um, Back to Basics under DJ Servier, Philip Bell, when he was the editor. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, New Zealand musician, and a few various just sort of little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And I just started slowly picking up these different little writing jobs so that the city voice stuff could fall out of the story yeah 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 yeah, yeah 100 the, the, the resume gets up yeah, yeah yeah you move, you move it forward and yeah. you know and i'd do anything you know like i mean somewhere like a lifestyle magazine like mm-hmm. uno or something that no one remembers either would be like hey can you write about like <laughs> a health spa and like the yeah, wire yeah. rapper you know or um something comes along like fishhead and they're like hey can you write like business profiles and I go, okay sure whatever i'd like um, the Wellington Regional Economic Develop- Development Agency gets in touch and they're like, hey, we can put you on a um, retainer to like do some blog entries about Wellington for us. Okay, sure, I'll do that. Whatever, you know, whatever, mm. whatever it takes. Um, and um, obviously, you know, you have your areas of interest. You know, there's things that you want to do more than others. Mm. But you start looking at this and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to need to make this work as well you know if I'm not going to have another job and having worked part-time in call centers and cafes like by the time I was about 25 26 I didn't I didn't really want to do that anymore I was mm. like I'd be pretty keen to find a way to make this work even if that means working far too many hours a day and far mm. too many days a week mm. and um I lucked out in that I got some pretty good opportunities in that regard and people were willing to give me a large volume of work and I had a good sense of what was going on overseas in a bunch of underground styles so I was able to like make connections with record labels and get access to interviews that maybe wouldn't happen in New Zealand do things like you know sort of like four page features about brain feeder or hyper dub records and but then at the same time there were a bunch of things happening around New Zealand you know there's always, there's always a few things sort of on the rise that mm people are interested in um and um you know radio came back into the picture um i figured out that you could do radio in different parts of the country you didn't have to just do it where you were living there were things you could do you could do pre-records or you could do things on the phone so i had this whole relationship with all the different student student radio stations around new zealand rdu and yeah rdu radio one in dunedin bfm in auckland like basically for her any opportunity and um I guess a real major factor though is what I quickly realised was that most of the work was in Auckland. Mm. So you kind of, you needed to get up to Auckland and you needed to meet people and you needed to meet people in a way where they enjoyed interacting you with you or having you around and then they were more likely to think of you. Um, and that probably means um, for a few years you probably have to uh, maybe drink a bit more than you'd like to. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. you know, you you have to try and sort of, yeah, and you find out, you know, who you can connect with, you know, yeah. who who you can have a working relationship with, but who you actually like and who actually likes you, you know, what works and what makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. So I mean, and I I did all of that, and I started trying to figure out ways to do stories in other parts of the country, you know, like go down to Christchurch and write a feature for Back to Basics about all the new people doing hip-hop in Christchurch or you know maybe um try and do something about like the dubstep scene around New Zealand or you know go and do like a thing about like some like emerging 
folk singers in Littleton or something, you know, like just go and find find these ways to do work where you could do some work while you were travelling. And um, you might not like completely cover your costs, but you know, you'd cover some of it and, and just see what's happening, you know, mm. and get a sense of what's going on around the country and try and like get a sense of what's going on other places, you know, like um, if you can go on holiday over to Australia or Europe or the States, try and figure out some way to fit some stories on here. Make it a bit of a business trip, yeah. Yeah, try and figure it out. And I figured out how to do that pretty well. I got pretty good at that. Mm. Like, really, really, really good at that. Um, and met a lot of people. And then we guess, I guess we get into the early 2010s and as you remember, everything changed. You know, all the magazines started dying mm. probably around 2009, like mm. maybe a bit earlier, maybe yeah, even 2008, little, yeah. you know. Yeah, some, yeah, that's right. Probably, yeah, probably around the time we would have first met was when things, magazines and stuff start existing as sort of lip service only and they've got their site is where everyone goes. Yeah, they're and trying to they like just, do blog that, sections. That's right, and then they just kind of slowly but quickly fall to bits. And that's like a weird couple of years because yeah. you could feel that like it was all falling to pieces. Mm. You know, you could really for arts coverage, you were really like, okay, mm. we're probably not going to have a lot of arts coverage in newspapers for a lot longer. Mm. Okay, how long will these magazines be around for? And you could also see it. People weren't really thinking about adapting. You know, the publicists weren't getting their head around how they were going to navigate the news landscape. The labels weren't. The journalists weren't. Everyone pretty much had their head in the sand about I it. I think the people at the Dominion still think online is a fad now. No, I, I, I believe they, they they said, that. And I'm not even actually <laughs> making a joke. Like, I know yeah. they thought that for the longest time, like, until a few years ago. Yeah. And possibly still do think that, uh, you know, they're decreasing relevance, revenue, yeah. size, distribution, um, physical size is all going to come back one day when, <laughs> when people switch off their modem. Well, you know, it's never coming back. No. And there's a lot we could critique about them. But yeah, I, yeah. what I will also say is they did write a very nice obituary piece for my father on the weekend. So, obviously, there's still situations and contexts in which they're able to give someone the resources and time to do something properly. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, like... For sure. Like, it's not like... Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is probably going to sound pretty bleak, but maybe it's not as bleak as I'm going to put it. But it was pretty bad at that time, and you mm. could kind of... Everyone had their head in the sand, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, everyone. No one was really thinking about what was going to come next. And um, I, at some point, I just realised, fuck, this is all about to radically shift. Um, what am I going to... Do. Do. What am I, like, literally, what mm. am I going to do? Mm. And then, ironically, as things these things often um, tend to be. So I guess by that time, a lot of people in the media landscape were starting to use things like Twitter. Mm. And um, I followed this account. It was called, um, I think it was called Renegade House or Clan Mouse. And anyway, the, they followed me back and then this guy like DM'd me and he was like, hey, I'd like to give you a call. And his name was Clim Clinton Cardozo. And he was from, he was, he was a, he was a Portuguese Indian and he, he was running this creative agency in Auckland called Clan Mouse. And he, um, he was like, hey, I've been reading like a whole bunch of your stuff. Um, I really like the amount of information that you fit into a story. I'm thinking about launching a tablet magazine or doing a... Yeah, doing, he wanted to do a tablet magazine. And that tablet magazine was this thing he wanted to do called Vanguard Red. And so Clan Mouse was this digital agency that were 
doing all this work for different companies around New Zealand, like making like photo shoots, video content, campaigns, yeah. building websites. Yeah. And they wanted this component because they wanted to trial all this technology and have this thing that they could show people. So they put me on this retainer to help them build like a blog and build, I guess, what would have intended to be like a quarterly yeah. tablet publication. But it was a little bit too early for a tablet publication or a smartphone publication. You know, people didn't have dark mm, plans where yeah. they, it wasn't really, you know, if you have 50 gigabyte download and you know, people's plan might be a hundred gigabytes a month. Um, yeah, yeah people still hadn't figured out how to get software to easily translate across platforms. So, you know, you have the whole mission of, you've got to make it for iPhone, you've got to make it for Android, you've got yeah. to make it for um, all these different things. There's a lot of stuff that you've got to consider to do this kind of thing. They were trying to figure it out and like they were developing a portfolio and we were doing some interesting things. And it didn't quite go where any of us thought it was going to go. But what it did do was it bought me a bit of time to think about stuff. Yeah. And it also gave them the portfolio they needed to secure certain types of work and jobs that they needed to move forward in life. You know, so Clinton and his partner wanted to start a family and he was able to get work that would provide for that. And there were a couple of other things that happened at the time of different places that were like, hey, we can pay you so much a month to do say like four like online stories or something I guess kind of like the situation you had with um stuff where it was like okay deliver what like five five blogs a week mm. or then like three blogs a week like mm, mm. yeah kind of like that these sort of things were happening people were starting to figure out how to do it um so I really like dived into that area trying to figure out how to do online writing for different places um and um then Around like the same time that was all happening, I started getting the opportunity to do radio stuff for places like Radio New Zealand or Newstalk ZB or like to come in, like people would be like, hey, do you want to come and do like a journalism talk or do you want to come and do this or that? All these different sort of things were occurring and I started, I'd taken a break from DJing for probably about five or six years, but I started doing that again and then... Like, I had the opportunity to um, put some shows on for some acts if I wanted mm. to. You know, and one of them was um, Brian Shimkovitz, Awesome Tapes from Africa, the cassette tape DJ. You know, he wanted to come to New Zealand, and I was a fan of his label, and we were able to work some stuff out. And we. So just talk a bit about, just talk a little bit about what his label actually is, or was then, yeah. and what his act is or was then like yeah. he, so because he's a dj who uses cassette tapes yeah okay so I mean, the clue is in the name but can yeah. you just unpack that a little yeah. Yeah. yeah okay so he um so brian was an academic who spent a bunch of time in um, parts of africa while he was on a scholarship and he built up this um, huge collection of cassette tapes from different countries and places that he visited and then when he got back to new york he was working as a music publicist and for recreation on the weekends he'd like rip the cassette tapes figure out the ones he liked and the ones he liked he'd upload them on this blog or whatever information he could find about them and then he'd started people started emailing him and sending him tapes and some of the artists would contact him and there was this whole conversation going on around this mm. a lot of this music that had been sort of like left like neglected and like the dust so there's a whole conversation going on around it all and people are talking about all this stuff and um then um 
this festival, I think it was in Germany, emailed and asked him if he could do a DJ set. And our friend Jace Clayton, DJ Rupture, who's like probably one of like the great like American like music thinkers and writers of like the last like twenty years, Jace was like, Well look, you should just tell them that you can do it even though you can't you should just tell them you can do it and go and do it so Brian was like oh yeah I can do it and so it was like okay well what's it gonna be okay you're gonna you're gonna play the cassettes so Brian had to figure out how to do a cassette tape DJ set um and um he figured out how to do that and like he started getting quite good at it and he figured out how to do things that you probably aren't meant to be able to do like how to beat match cassettes where you layer the beat from one tape on top of the other one and like you use like pitch bending controls to get the tempos right and he was doing it like you'd do a normal DJ set and suddenly he had all this DJ work offers coming in and Brian was like DJing everywhere and then um the blog was going crazy and the DJing was going crazy and then a distributor was like hey do you consider making this into a record label as well so he turned it into a record label and he started um, when he could get in contact so with us. All of this is under the name, the wider name, also yeah. name. So <laughs> what he'd do is he'd get in contact with the artists and he'd tell them what was going on and then he'd go, hey, look, I can re release your music. Um, we can do, like, here's like the deal. We can do like a 50 50 sort of deal. Um, I'll do the publicity and everything. And he'd find these people and like build these relationships with them and reissue their music. And some of them, like, their music started selling really well. Like people like Haile Merja from the Warriors Band, who was a sideman with Mulatu Osake in Ethiopia in mm-hmm. the 70s. He'd been living in Washington DC since the 80s, driving a taxi, just playing, like he had a keyboard he kept in his taxi to practice in between fairs. And people are really loving these reissues of Hailu's music. And there's demand for him to tour and you know Hailu can still play and he puts a band together and he starts touring and I mean fuck I mean Hailu would be about 70 now and suddenly he's on the road for like half the year you mm-hmm. know doing all these gigs and then guys like DJ Caterpillar from who's from Ghana also who was uh, like a Ghanaian techno DJ who made these songs where he'd do his own vocals on the top sort of telling stories about things that had happened around the local town like a song about the bus service or a and he used to DJ at funerals. Mm. His thing in Ghana was he was the funeral DJ. He'd mm. DJ these funerals that would go for two days. And suddenly he's having to go to Europe. And there's this guy, Brian, who'd been trying to find for a decade, Atakak, who made this weird outsider hip life record. So he's a Ghanaian who immigrated to Germany, tricked a bunch of Germans into thinking he was a reggae artist. He made them believe he could play drums and sing when he couldn't. Mm. Learned how to do it, like when no one was looking. Went to band practice did these gigs, moved to Toronto, bought a whole bunch of gear, made this tape, sent it back for his brother to sell over there, no one really bought it, it vanished, somehow Brian found a copy in a market fair, put it on the internet, people fell in love with it, um, and he finds him, and um, like he's still in fighting form, like he's still, he's still in fighting form, I interviewed Atakak, and um, he um, he's in fighting form, he like really had been practicing singing and dancing and rapping every day for like the last 30 years you know just waiting he was like and was just so just completely convinced that this was just sort of this thing that was always going to happen you know eventually I'll be discovered my brilliance will be like acknowledged yeah so there's all this stuff going on you know these guys are like running around the world and like getting all this money and Brian's like running around the world like 
Um, but then there's a lot of art sort of based releases on the label that wouldn't sell as much also. So he, so he has to be on these never ending DJ tours to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of expenses, things like, you know, everyone needs visas, people miss flights, like people have like a week between gigs. And um, I mean, when you're doing a European tour, there's a lot of top costs that the promoter or the um, booking agents and that don't absorb. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other stuff that has to be paid for somehow. Mm. So, um, yeah, and I mean, like, during this time, we had him come back and play in New Zealand a few times. Maybe most famously when we had him do a dual headline set last year with the 80s Los Angeles electro boogie legend, the Egyptian lover. Mm -hmm. Came to New Zealand for the second time, and they, they did this thing together. So I've known Brian for years, and, um, yeah, we ended up working on a project together. So you carry on doing versions of the bits and pieces that you've sort of surveyed you still do online writing here well, and there you you obviously yeah. you, you stepped up your own DJing again as yeah. you sort of started to say but within that yeah you you create this you work on this project with him this reissue project yeah but I guess there's there's one thing that's probably worth mm. like getting to before then okay so mm. the next major pivot around all of yeah. the writing work okay this is really important because this is really like the point where in a lot of ways the timeline starts for me. Um, so 2013, okay, so um, look, I mean, you name it around New Zealand, like I'd done it, you know, like North and South, um, like all of the music magazines, fucking yeah. like newspapers, I could kind of pretty much wherever you could get some writing published and like print within like the New Zealand landscape, like I'd had some form of story or profile or something yeah. on someone done yeah. and um and i'm looking at it and i'm like man like if you don't have a staff writer position you know there's not a lot that you can do here okay how how am i going to keep doing this going into my 30s mm. and i thought you know it'd be so awesome to be able to do this sort of work overseas or for worldwide audiences you know maybe there's something in that mm. um and then this really funny like sequence of events happened. So I got this email from this record label called Mexican Summer in New York and they were like, hey, our friend Shay Birmingham told us to get in touch with you. He, um, we're, we're looking after Conan Moccasin in New York. We're looking after the American like, releases of like Caramel and that. Mm. And we've arranged him to do this live session with Boiler Room TV, which was like this prominent like yeah. DJ platform. It was like this website where people would live stream DJ sets. And they were thinking, they were trying to move into live music as well. They thought, hey, you know, there's certain records or artists that our DJ audience likes that, like a band things. Yeah. And Conan's one of these people who, as you know, he, he crosses a lot of markets, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. A lot of people <laughs> like Conan. Um, can you write a background piece on him for us? I interviewed Conan a couple of times. I thought, sure thing, I could do that. So I did that. And then um, later in the year, I had an opportunity to go to Japan and do some coverage about the Red Bull Music Academy for the Red Bulletin, which is this magazine that Red Bull runs out of Europe, Radio New Zealand, and a few other places. Um, and this website in the United Arab Emirates called The State sent me an email and they were like, we'd like you to put together a mix of contemporary New Zealand music for us. I was like, okay, sure, I'd love to do that. I'd do that. So a few of these different little pieces and things 
came together that involved work that had been done for or published outside of New Zealand. And it got to the end of the year and I had about five of these things. Mm. And I was like, okay, if I was to email some places in the States or the UK, I could just send these five links and the fact that I'm in New Zealand. I might not even need to say that I'm in New Zealand. I could just say that I'm a New Zealander and, hey, these are my areas I work in and here's some stuff I've done. And they're going to know what all of these things are. These are all things within their world. I can't send them a scan of a story from Rip It Up or a link to, um, like, something for, like, New Zealand radio or a thing from North... None of that means anything to them. They don't care. You know, and this is something generation after generation of New Zealanders have found out when they go on mm. their OEs is um, you get to London and, you know, no one gives a fuck about what you've done back in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't care. They don't give a fuck, you know. Like, and it's not even, like, malicious or mean. It's just they don't know what any of it is. So I contacted a whole bunch of places and some of them wrote back. Um, places like ID, Dummy Mag, 405, Dazed and Confused, Norient, Resident Advisor, um... And I started getting the opportunity to put together and like do the sorts of stories I'd always wanted to do, which really ramped up over a couple of years, like with like big big features on people like sort of the cult like Bolivian singer Luzmila Carpio, people like the um, Japanese minimalist Midori Takada, Alice Coltrane retrospectives, things on like new emerging people like Yeji. Um, yeah, it's really amazing. Like, it's this really amazing thing is that suddenly, um, yeah, getting to do this work that you've always wanted to do. And um, it seems to be working. And when you do all of that stuff, it builds your profile in a way where different types of organisations start coming in and talking to you about doing things. Mm. You know, you maybe you get requests from brands or companies that want to get copywriting work done. You know, maybe like shoe companies, like energy drink companies, um, all these different sort of places. And suddenly, like, the whole possibility of, like, between, like, the DJing, writing, maybe putting on a few shows here and there, and little beats, bits of, like, copywriting work or side work, suddenly it all seemed like, okay, maybe this is a little bit more sustainable or possible. Um, which really, um, yeah, that took me... That, in a lot of ways, that takes me to where I am now. Mm. And during this period of time is when the project that you were alluding to earlier mm. came into play. So, Brian knew about Our Garden Needs Its Flowers by Jess Subby and Peter One, which is an Ivorian country and folk album from 1985. He'd known about it for a while, but he'd never been able to find the guys or contact them. And it was a record we used to always talk about. We both really liked it. You know, it was this beautiful mixture of country and folk and Afro-pop, and they were singing English and French and in, like, local, like, local languages in the Ivory Coast. And it was just something, something really different about it. And increasingly it felt like maybe this is a record that's going to become more relevant again. So I started putting a lot of pressure on him. I was like, hey, you know, what about, why don't you do that record? Why don't you do that record? And, um, yeah, I guess he got a little bit more excited about it and started doing more research. And next thing you know, he 
yeah, he found he found them on Facebook. Like, I think he found relatives of theirs, and then he found them, and they started talking, and it turned out that it would be relatively easy to relicense the music from the producer. Um, and suddenly it all seemed to make sense. Um, and I found a mint condition copy of the original record because in the 80s it came out as in France as well as West right. Africa I found a mint condition copy of it on vinyl in Paris yeah. perfect perfect condition artwork record everything um, and um, through just through yeah just, just through going record stores yeah. oh right yeah. no just through going, yeah. going through record stores so yeah. I found this mint condition copy like yeah. um, and um, that was really really handy because you know we, we mean that mm. we had mm. We had the full like LP size artwork. Yeah, you know, it wasn't yeah, like yeah. turning a cassette into yeah. record. We had the actual record, and it turned out that the actual record was in better condition than the master tape. Right. So what we actually did was we created a new master Off. from the record yeah. with a woman in um, San Francisco, Jessica, who's remastered most of the releases on the label, and it like it sounds really good, like as a. Mm result so we were going through this whole process and i was like getting the record scanned and everything and brian was like well like, you're helping me with a lot of this do you want to write the liner notes and i was like you yeah, know I'd, I'd love to write the liner notes so he put me into contact with jesse and peter and i started emailing them and calling them and talking and just over like a period of months like they gave me an insight and a window into who they were, their lives, what was going on on the Ivory Coast at the time, the role music played in their lives, um, the political situation, and we just started to slowly piece it together. But I guess if you want the joke version, the joke version is a high school history teacher and a political cartoonist walk into a recording studio and come out with the album of a generation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what physical format does the album come out in? The, the reissue? What vinyl, CD. Yeah. Vinyl and CD. So vinyl's yeah. gatefold. So yeah. it has a gatefold version with a whole bunch. So I, I, I kept hassling Peter and Peter had a whole press clipping folder of photographs and stuff from the 80s when mm. they were in the peak. I made him scan everything. So mm. we got the images and that and the liner notes and we turned that into the inside of the gatefold vinyl. With the CD version, the gatefold shows you the photographs and the lyrics and then we have a separate sheet with the notes and the information but i mean i guess the other so these guys you know these guys um they had parents who were farmers and they were the kids who were of the generation at the right time in history where they were able to do things like mm. go to university and they so they learned had a far stronger command of the english language and what are university students do you know they go and listen to protest music or yeah, yeah, yeah. folk music this is true around the world you know yeah. so these guys fell in love with folk and country artists you know like people like don williams bob dylan crosby stills and nash cat yeah. stevens like they became indoctrinated this and they'd grown up with music in their lives anyway yeah, yeah and they um for whatever reason they ended up having very similar styles as singers and guitarists um, they were introduced through one of their nephews and it just clicked straight away. They could just do it. And Jesse had actually, in a sense, almost been a teenage or child star. He'd been performing on radio shows and TV shows on the Ivory Coast since he was about 16. Um, so he had this whole head of contacts. Mm, mm. So he was like, hey, I've got my duo now. And, you know, suddenly they're appearing regularly on radio and they were 
certain radio broadcasters who were really supporting country and folk music. So it's mm. like, oh, we've got the local version. We've got our version. You know, yeah. similar to the excitement we've seen when certain bands in New Zealand maybe crack a New Zealand specific version of a certain sound you know like the the unrelenting excitement over flying nun for example you know where people were just impossibly proud of this thing mm. right? um and but because the ivory coast being the ivory coast the musicians weren't looked down upon but musician wasn't necessarily considered a good job so these guys had real jobs as well and respectable jobs you know peter what became a high school history teacher. Jesse was a political cartoonist. Like Jesse's actually an amazing cartoonist and has done a whole bunch of really funny and incredible like cartoons across the French like or Francophile like mm. world like for like decades. Mm. Really, really good. Like and some people might argue his cartoon work might be better than his music. You know. Right. Like yeah, you know you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so these, these guys became really popular and they ended up performing to stadiums around West Africa and they'd get called on for political events and talks mm. and all the stuff. And then it got to the 90s and they both had a sense that things were about to go south and they got the fuck out of there. And yeah. they got to America and they um, did their thing trying to figure out what their lives were going to look like and they ended up living in different places. Jesse ended up in San Francisco teaching music to children, doing um, Christian music groups things, performing in venues around town. Pierre bounced around the country before ending up in Nashville. Like now he does like a lot of community stuff, helping record young people, like works in like So these are the places industries. where they are now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah Pierre's yeah, in Nashville, still. Jesse's yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah. So Pierre made it to Nashville. Yeah. You know. Pierre, Peter, Peter One, like, yeah. which is like pretty amazing, really, you know, from being like inspired by those records to, yeah, 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 like living there, um, and um, yeah, so we we had all these great conversations, and they were really lovely guys, and they could still play, and they could still sing, and they were really excited and really easy to deal with, and this weekend they played a couple of shows in Los Angeles and San Francisco, wow, and like it looks like the shows went pretty well. And next month they're playing in New York. Um, places have been like writing about them, like Vogue France, Mojo, um, Rolling Stone, Guardian. Um, so that's been a thrill also because yeah. you know these are those yeah. are places that maybe I haven't been published or might not be published, sure. but to have like yeah. a project touch those sort of places, and also to have immediate like. And it was, it was so funny though because the way it started when everything was announced about six weeks ago was there was a, um, a news entry on the Vinyl Factory which is mm. this website that um, is run by a vinyl pressing plant. Quite, quite a nerd. And then there was a thing about one of the songs on Resident Advisor which is a dance music site. Right. You know. like So it was like okay this is already getting off on an unconventional foot. Um, and then places like Bandcamp started getting behind it. Um, mm. And then more of the traditional, or the sort of... I think the thing I love about the stuff like Guardian, Rolling Stone and Mojo is those are things that, like, will have some meaning for them. Yeah. You know, because these yeah. guys, the other thing is, these guys were music nerds, and they grew yeah. up reading music magazines, going to record stores. So, like, I mean, you, you've you've jumped ahead by saying that they've, they've ended up doing shows and, and that they've gone well, but, yeah, my question was going to be what's been their their personal immediate reaction to I guess the renewed interest in their album and then the realisation that it was coming out they've obviously been helpful 
Yeah. But do you have some sense of how proud they are to think that this music has meant something to other people? Well, I mean, obviously well, we know now because they've gone no, to well, shows. No, but, but this is what's interesting about it, though. The interesting thing is, like, this is, in a lot of ways, like, it's easy to underestimate how commercial this was in West Africa mm. in the late 80s. Mm. So these guys are very used to hearing themselves on the radio all day. Yeah. And performing to huge audiences and, um, like, being loved. Yeah. Like, so... So they've had the experience. They've had that experience before, but what I would say is they seem very excited to potentially have a similar experience again. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, like yeah. I mean, they, they they remember what that feels like. Yeah. And maybe they have some thoughts on how they would do things um, differently if they got. It's that classic thing, you know. If I had another shot. Yeah, yeah. And these are the guys who who've got another shot. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, all that all that sort of awaits is the documentary. Well, hopefully not. Film. You know, I think. <laughs> no, I know. I know. That's, that's what I mean. That's the curse, isn't it? Yeah, there's some. There's, there's, I mean, I guess this is the good thing. The, the good thing is that sort of you know everyone's. That's, ex- that would speak against the sort of awesome tapes ethos, I would think. Yeah, well, everyone's experienced enough now to sort of know, um, where um know where the line is yeah you know and like what seems like i can't accept another sugar man (laughs) yeah you know like that's the thing it's like an an easy one is not necessarily a long-term one yeah yeah you know in particular when you're thinking about things like legacy Um, yeah 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 but i understand why people get really tempted for this sort of thing of course you know because i'm sure i mean the um the trickery of the exceptional sugar man documentary i'm sure it's been very helpful for six to financially mm. but it does create an expectation that does lead to some very weird experiences for people when they finally make it to the concerts mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. Now, you know like these these things where like you create that huge story like that um there's a real um yeah there's a lot of real potential for it to go very left yeah you know yeah yeah now all of the stuff around this awesome tapes reissue is all in the pipeline and it's all happening it's all ready to go and then and you start to get some press around it i guess some yeah. good good news stories and then you have this personal story of your father dying yeah 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 and have obviously you know you've you've i wondered if we were going to talk about that in any way because obviously you, you told me about that and yeah. one of the reasons you told me about that was you were going to come around and have a version of this conversation and you messaged me and said um, my father's yeah. just died so can we reschedule and I didn't know if I'd talk to you you know I thought maybe we know each other and we would have seen each other in the street and eventually planned it but I thought maybe I won't talk to you for months and months um, anyway here you are and, and we have had that conversation but and you have processed on whatever level you're available to do at the time um, family grief around your father's funeral you've you've bound together i know i know this about you because i've been in touch with you about it a little bit but um it would strike me as a weird time for you that you have this in some ways a pinnacle of a personal story for you that's happened that you've just had to put to the back and go well that's still happening that's well this is kind of how life works isn't it Mm. you know there's a lot of people who have this experience it's 
it's a classic it's almost a movie it's almost a movie trope sort of thing you know you you have an incredible moment and then you know you walk off stage or you get off the plane or whatever and you get Slip hit on with this skin. <laughs> yeah. yeah you get hit with this incredibly yeah, yeah. bad news yeah. um i mean i thought it was kind of funny to be honest you know i thought oh this is this is hilarious you know this is really um and i think it's quite common i think a lot of people have things like this happen mm. you know i think you know I'm something sure. something remarkable happens and something terrible happens um and I mean, it wasn't just for me. I mean, it was like my my sister and her partner moved into their first home two days after the funeral. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. You know. So, yes, I and wasn't... so this is it. You can go looking for it and find that everyone has their yeah their version mean, of things where they have to put their life on hold for a second because, in the scheme of things, because of news they hear. I mean, my brother's been living in Norway with his partner for the last nine so months, and and within his career, he's doing some incredible work and you know he's having this really amazing experience and then he finds out your father's died and has to come back to New Zealand mm. you know so yeah I mean like you said you know once you start looking mm. you know Everyone you won't stop it, sure. you, you won't stop I mean I mean did the symbolism strike me the symbolism a hundred percent struck me mm. but at the same time it was sort of um I mean, look, I mean, how do these things go? You know, the first week you're like, you have to organize a funeral. And um, that in itself, you know, that's a whole, like, that's a whole thing. That's a yeah. crazy thing. You know, you've got to organize a funeral. It's and a whole new skill set. That's while a whole you, thing you never, you didn't have an experience in. No, no, no. And while, like, you get help from people like the funeral director and, mm -hmm. like, the celebrant and that, there's still a lot of little things you've got to keep on top of. And you have to find a way to sort of, get outside of yourself and mm -hmm. see it objectively. I mean, I think, I mean, in all honesty, I think initially we probably thought we would have gotten away with having his funeral in like a small hundred person chapel or something. Mm. Um, but I mean, Brian was a Wellington city councillor for 18 years. He knew yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. It was, was never going to be a small thing. It was always going to be people turning up to pay their respects that had had a connection with him that might have lapsed in terms of a day to day yeah, thing, but yeah. as you say, eight, I'm just I'm speaking to 18 years of involvement in the council. Yeah, in the means, community. In the community means that there are people that were part of that journey a decade ago, or whatever. Yeah, so we have to do this huge thing yeah. at um, like Old St Paul's, and I mean, on one level, you just want to think about yourself. You know, I mean, my primarily, I, I mean, I am I'm not going to lie, I'm primarily concerned about my brother and sister and my mother but you know all these all of these people you know you never know the meaning someone has to someone and quite often it can be disproportionate you mm -hmm. know you can be incredibly affected by the passing of someone other people would think you weren't particularly close to you don't know so you've got all these people coming who all need some attention you know they need an opportunity to be able to say something or sort of mm. like feel okay about this thing and then you compound it with the fact that like in his retirement years he decided that you know he like the rest of us he decided he was going to get into social media and um and he started taking all these photographs of native birds and people really liked them and there's mm. this whole other online audience yeah, of yeah, people. Yeah. so there's this whole online thing that has to be managed as well so yeah. it's sort of like okay there has to be an announcement from his page and like we probably the people who 
comment probably need like a comment or a message. I mean, this is a full-time job, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you've got that, and then you start having like media requests coming in, you know, places want to do stories or whatever. Um, you've got to write statements and things. You know, none of this is stuff that you really want to do or mm. think about, mm. you know? And you have to write like speech, you know, you've got to speak, you've got to do all this stuff, you know, while you're trying to process and come to terms with the whole thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, then in the back of the mind, you're like, okay, I'll, Truthfully, with the reissue, once all of this happened, I tapped out. Mm. I just stopped thinking about it. And in terms of work as a freelancer, like the night that he died, I emailed everyone I do work for and I was like, look, this is going to sound really shocking, but I think I'm okay at the moment. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. this is what's going on. Uh, You don't expect anything from me anytime soon. Mm. Um, No one was difficult. No one was belligerent. Everyone was understanding. Um, I feel like the family's experienced an incredible amount of support over the last three weeks. Um, yeah, so I mean, that that's quite remarkable too, you know, when you sort of see the extent to which people are really willing to be there for you in a difficult time and the extent mm. to which people are willing to accommodate you. And um, yeah, then all the stories start coming out and you've got to put together the photo slideshow and, um, you know, people start talking, you have the speeches and it's quite nice because what happens is you um the image if it's done correctly i think the image of the person you're left with Mm. is quite a nice image you know if you do it properly if you if it's done well you know good good obituary good funeral good speakers good everything like you should be left with some really great memories as close to a celebration as can be yeah yeah as close obviously there's a, a sadness that will forever tinge that celebration but still a celebration because the funeral and the grieving is everything that happens after the death so that's what you try to put into it well here's the thing you can't you can't die if you weren't born you know you sort of you you have to have lived to die Mm, mm. yeah there's no it's, it's, it's a package deal you know there's no way you can unpackage these things um and you i mean i still think Oh, it's a hard one. It's a hard one, though, isn't it? People talk about this idea of giving people their flowers while they can yeah, yeah. smell them. And I feel like people tried to do that with Aretha Franklin last week. Yes, I know. That was but an interesting But some one. of that seemed pretty awkward, you know? When you've got uh, people going, hey, we think she's going to die soon. Can you... Anyone want to give us quotes? You know, anyone want to... I'm not sure that's what... This is the some... weird thing about public grieving with, with social media. Another one that was strange, and it's, it's like each one is getting more strange now because we're still learning how to yeah. deal with it or whatever but the Tom Petty one was interesting too because of the the I guess premature announcement based around him you know um, suffering this brain injury first of all as it was reported and being put on life support and then announcements about being the life support being turned off which was a coma or whatever and then um, people were going hey man he might pull through and it's sort of like there was nothing to celebrate. Like, if he did pull through, it wasn't going to be anything really to celebrate. Well, we didn't... And there was almost like a relief at the end of 12 hours or whatever it was that someone could actually call it. But, yeah, suddenly people are already... And, yeah, I noticed the Aretha thing last week. It was like, by the time the announcement came, it was like a lot of people had already, you know, done their grieving. Well, we... um, Yeah, I mean... We didn't put anything online about um, Brian having died for three days. 
because I just wanted to make sure everything was lined up. Yeah, uh, I wanted yeah. to make sure we had the we had the venue for the funeral booked. We had everything sorted. I just wanted to have everything sorted and worked out before, like we told the public. Obviously, we started calling and telling people straight away. Sure, which is like a harrowing thing in itself. But people who are really famous don't have this sort of luxury. No, you know, it's really yeah. they can't wait to get things in order properly. Um, and I mean it is it is it's an odd thing but it's you as I always say you know there's so much about the world we're living in right now that we act like is strange or weird but the reality is we've architected our world to be like this over the last 20-30 years and we all have to take some level of responsibility for the fact we live in this place where people turn everything into memes and fake news and announcements mm. like we're all part of it on some little level of course you know of like course. we all contribute to it like mm. and sometimes we really like it and think it's really funny mm. Mm. yeah sometimes we love it you know? or we're really baffled by it and angry by it but that's yeah. that's a huge part of being complicit in it yeah yeah for yeah, sure and you know. i mean and grief is interesting too because as you're dealing with yourself you're dealing with other people and when you're dealing with someone who's got a public profile you've got all sorts of strange conversations you end in yeah. and um i had some pretty strange messages from people like messages that you could almost summarize or co even conversations that you could almost summarize down to sorry for your loss like check my new mixtape right now <laughs> like you could get really angry with someone for doing something like that mm. but if you take a step back and think about it like we vastly overestimate people's social skills a lot of the time. We have this idea that people know how to say or do the right thing. And if they don't say or do the right thing, they're deliberately malicious. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very quickly, you know, someone puts one step wrong mm -hmm. and they're the um, antichrist. Mm -hmm. And in situations like this, you know, you could very comfortably paint someone as really horrible. But the truth is, is that they're trying to reach out to you and have a conversation with you in a way they're accustomed to. And um, if you if you're a DJ or if you write about music, um, something people do is they send you music. Yeah, that's part of how they relate to you. Yeah, you know they contact you when they yeah. have a new project and because they you know maybe they don't necessarily feel like they can contact you like in between. And we've when you're saying as architects in this new world or whatever, we've deliberately created a system that allows people to be less physically present and social than they ever were so we can't be too surprised at a apparent lack of social skills and then we've also created a situation where everyone's an opportunist so you take your opportunity but so sorry for your grief here's my mixtape yeah as cold as that might seem is someone taking your opportunity isn't it well look you know that's like that's people fucking at the end of fucking 30 fucking 40 50 years of capitalist rhetoric you know like mm. there's a lot there's so much out there that suggests you know you have to um by whatever means you know by whatever means necessary mm -hmm. do it you know make your mark like and do you get there you know moment of truth like get rich or die trying um mm. like yeah and we have to be aware of that you know you've got to be aware of that and how you interpret people's behavior and responses mm. um but the flip side of that also is you have so many amazing and beautiful yeah, conversations course. and messages and um, recognize in some people some genuine 
uh, compassion that you wasn't so much that you didn't think or know was there, but you just had had no interaction with them. And then yeah, you're like, some people just get you know? it, you know. And then you're like, wow, this person is a yeah. nice a nice person who had a night who had a, a connection with my father through or whatever, even and necessarily a, didn't even have a connection or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like 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 Lady Six, like and like Tom Scott from like Avantdale Bowling Club Homebrew that like both just totally got it you know mm-hmm. um there were people who just really understood oh shit you know that's a fucking huge thing um I'm here I'm sorry do you need anything um and I think that's the best thing that you could probably say to someone is like hi I'm here I see you is there anything I can help you with and that's about all you need to do you don't need to say anything deep or meaningful to anyone. There's no magic words you can use to unlock. Um, yeah, to fix things too. There's not, you can't. But what you can do is you can be present and you can offer to help. Or you can just know. And you know some people just know. Some people just know to bring around a bowl of soup and some bread or a lasagna. Or some people just know to drop off some extra vases because they know how many flowers you're going to get sent. Mm. Most people don't own as many vases as... People don't really own vases, you know, and if you get sent a lot of flowers, like, yeah, yeah. vases are a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> some people just know what to do, you know, and some people don't know what to do, and it's much like, in the moment of danger, some people will freeze and some people will react. That doesn't make the people who react better than the people who freeze. It just makes them different. Mm. Mm. You know, people will come into their own in different ways at different times, and, um, just because someone got it wrong in one situation, that doesn't mean that they won't get it right in another situation. It is funny that feeling awkward about something is often the reason people will not react to something. And then that frigid, that freezing or that refusal to yeah. end up, I guess, seeming perhaps even more awkward. But as you say, that doesn't make it wrong. That's, it's, it's understandable. But oh, well, you know, this is how crazy I am. Is I mean, I quite liked people messaging me online because um, telling people in person, sometimes you get the feeling that you've just completely ruined someone's day. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, like, once again, like, like I said, this is how like crazy I am. Yeah, yeah. It's like I felt bad about ruining people's day. Like, I didn't want to tell someone just before they were starting work or <laughs> I can't come around and do your podcast yeah or something like that <laughs> for like, example <laughs> yeah like I just that's how crazy I am it's because you know like for everyone who doesn't care there's someone who really does care. yeah yeah and for some people you know they care because they have empathy for you or for some people this takes them back to when they were in a very similar situation mm. and um it can have a massive effect on people you know it's not just like a little yeah yeah formality yeah um so yeah sometimes like Sometimes, like, the online thing is a little bit better than we give it credit for. We like to pretend it. And also, you know, for younger people, like, I'm sorry, anyone who thinks, like, in the big heartfelt conversation has... Well, for some people, like, especially under certain ages, like, a series of, like, sad face emojis is actually the same thing as, like... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? We fucking do this arrogant thing where we go, oh, you know, fucking, they're not doing it properly. This is how it's meant to be done. Like... Yeah. But, um, I mean, you don't know the weight behind people's actions or, like, the feelings within them, you know? So, mm. um, yeah. It's been, a, it's been, uh, it's been the last couple of weeks for me. 
Um, very sad, but very life-affirming series of events. You know? Yeah, and, um, and I mean, you, you referenced at the top of this a connection to music through your father and, and many other things, and obviously yeah. his life was well-lived in terms of community service and then some artistic exploration and so forth. Your relationship with him, I guess, is something you probably ponder again now, but um, give or take, was it always good? My, I mean, my understanding of it was that it was, but... You know what? Like, on the fucking... On the scale of, like, father-son, like, relationships, it was pretty good, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean... I mean, obviously, like, there were, like, things that I did when I was a teenager that annoyed him. Yeah. And, I mean, in retrospect... Which seems I'm, perfectly normal. I'm annoyed as, with me as well. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, he... Um, something I think was really great that he did that people don't necessarily understand when I explain it was he was very supportive without being overly enthusiastic so he was never he never led me to believe I was amazingly good at anything but he never um made me feel like I couldn't do anything either yeah so there was no he gave you your space yeah it's your choice you know you if you want to do it you should do it but you know I'm not going to fucking coddle you around this you know i'm mm -hmm. not going to tell you that you're the most amazing mm. photographer or what writer or yeah. artist or anything you know but that being said if you do it i 100 percent think you should do it yeah yeah and um, the results will speak yeah and like you'll you'll work it out or you won't you know and i mean like you have conversations with some people who admit that it wasn't until their late 20s or their early 30s that they realized they weren't as amazing as their parents told them they were mm. And, um, once again, that's, no one can be blamed for any of this. You know, you just choose, you do things how you do it, you know? Um, I think, you know, parents are always going to be fond of their children. Ch children are always going to be fond of their parents, but there's going to be weird, um, nuances on that, you know? Mm. Some mm. people will love their parents, but have a difficult relationship with them. Um, some people will love their children, but have a difficult relationship with them, right? Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I'm um, it's 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 now hard to to sort of segue back in some ways, and I'm conscious of our time. But I I want to know if there's anything else that you've got going on that you want to talk about, or what you've got planned next, or what what continues on for you work-wise. Obviously, this project has life in it. Um, the reissue, in terms of it's still being it's still being discovered, and it's gonna. Yeah, get yeah. discovered for a while and hopefully for a long time and so it's still getting written about and um and, and enthused over and um and that will lead to whatever it will lead to but is there anything else that's currently on the boil or are you just involved in lots of djing lots of writing getting getting back on track obviously given what we've just been talking about well well i have been doing i've been doing some work for this music learning app this com company called Melodics um, that um, so it's basically it's like a duolingo for music mm. but as like a video game so you it teaches you how to play the drum parts and melody parts of certain songs um, I've been doing like some interviews and some articles for their website to go alongside that thing so I'm enjoying that there's some education work what else was going on lots of trips to Auckland to play records and yeah. you, you always seem to be doing that 
yeah, about once a month. I've got a residency at a um, venue called Love Bucket, and there's a few other places I play around there, and I play about once a month at Laundry in Wellington. Um, so that's nice. Like, I've been, like, collecting a lot of, like, disco and boogie records from Brazil, Japan, South Africa, Korea, Nigeria. So doing a lot of stuff around those sort of accesses with DJ sets. It's been quite fun. Uh, not doing, not really doing any radio these days. Um, although over the last couple of years, like when I'm in the States or the UK, I've managed to put together a few radio presentations for online stations like NTS, Dublab, The Lot Radio. Um, so that sort of thing's quite exciting. Also doing like broadcasting work on an international platform. Um, but yeah, in a lot of the ways, like a lot of the stuff, like, I just stopped everything over the last few weeks and yeah. um, I don't necessarily have clear plans for what comes next or what's going to happen once the current batch of things is done. There's a whole bunch of stuff mm -hmm. I've put together that'll come out over the next few weeks and I guess I'll start doing some more stuff next week, but um, I'm not going to rush into thinking about yeah. what comes next because yeah. um, you, you have no idea, you know, these sort of things you... You can feel pretty good and like you're doing pretty well and things are doing pretty okay, but you don't know when, yeah. what's going to hit you. You just yeah. don't know, you know, so it's sort of, it's a bit a day of, a day at a time at the moment. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. I yeah. think that's all right. Like a bird on the wild, like a drunk in a midnight choir, I have tried in my way. Be 